I might have my own opinions about the first four, but it's good for HBCU history. Oh yeah, it's Locked on HBCU. Play my music. You are Locked on HBCU, your daily podcast covering HBCU sports. Part of the Locked on Podcast Network, your team every day. What's going on, family? Welcome back to another episode of the Locked on HBCU podcast, your number one daily one-stop shop for everything HBCU athletics, Monday through Friday, part of the Locked on podcast network, your team every day. And I, of course, am Darian Gray, a.k.a. the Mouth of the South, Texas Southern alum and former TSU Herald Sports editor, and of course, I'm the host of Locked on HBCU, man. I appreciate you guys. Remember, just because the mic cuts off does not mean that the journey is over. It just means it's time to follow me on Twitter at South Exclusives right here at the bottom of the screen. If you're on the audio side of things, don't forget the S on the end. And this is kind of a comprehensive view of the first four. That's the round that Texas Southern will be participating in. We asked Election Sunday, Howard and Texas Southern are going to be 16 seeds, right? The number 16 seed. However, TSU has to play in to be a part of the 64. We're going to look at that game itself. We have Isaac Shade from Locked On College Basketball to break down the selection process and basically explain why TSU was the number 16 seed and why they have to be a part of the the first four, which is like the play in. But first off, the first four. This goes so far against how I feel and my beliefs of the first four. But in this realm. The first four is good for HBCU history. It still feels kind of odd to say this, and I think the best way to explain it is though I'm not the biggest fan of the first four, I do see the usefulness of it to HBCUs, specifically to HBCUs, and really smaller conferences, but this is not locked on small conference. This is locked on HBCU, so you are who I'm speaking to, right? To me... The NCAA tournament is 64 teams. It's not been that way for 12 years. It's been a field of 68 since 2011. But to me, the real March Madness is 64 teams. To me, that round of first four, we're not talking about round one, two, three, four. No, it's actually called the first four. That's the name of the round. To me, that's very similar to the NBA play-in. And guess what? I don't like the NBA play-in. Not a big fan of it. It's very similar. It's not the same, however. And when you hear me talk about my gripes, I preface them with to me because I understand that to me is not reality. What things look like to me. See, when I say the real NCAA tournament is 64 teams. Well, that's just my opinion. That's just my viewpoint. But the truth of the matter is the real NCAA tournament is indeed 68 teams. When I talk about it being similar to the plan, it's not the same. Well, that was not really to me. That's kind of a fact. Well, I guess really to me, depending on how you look at it. But that's not one that's disputed in reality, because the reality of the situation is Texas Southern and Fairleigh Dickinson, who they will be playing in their first four game. They are both already a part of the NCAA tournament, whether they win or lose. That will be a part of their NCAA tournament record. Just because they are fighting for the number 16 seed does not make it a play in. And that's the big difference. See, if you win the play-in and then 
that doesn't go on to your, your playoff record. It's not, oh, I won a series. You might say they won the, the play-in, but really, as time goes on, we're not going to remember it as much. It's just going to be a game. Like, 10 years from now, I probably won't know who wins the play-in this year unless it was just that magnificent of a game. That's a little bit of the difference because it actually goes on the record. But when I say it's good for HBCU history, I'm not talking about HBCUs making history. I'm not talking about, oh, this was groundbreaking. This has never been done before. This was some monumental moment. I actually mean the past. I actually mean that when looking back in 10 years and talking about how HBCUs have fared in the NCAA tournament, the first four more than likely or not, more than likely is going to be what you bring up. That's just factual. More than likely, when you're talking about your school and you're trying to brag, like if I'm TSU and I'm trying to brag to Prairie View and I'm talking about NCAA tournament victories, we're really talking about the first four. Because eight, making history would have been Norfolk State winning as a 15 seed. That's, that's a big deal. That's something that's groundbreaking. It's even one of the reasons that somebody said they didn't want to have an HBCU exclusive tournament after the season. And I get that. Those moments mean a lot. But do not allow that one moment that is so monumental and probably holds a lot of weight to many people. Don't allow that one moment, that one game to distract you from the fact that the most success is found in the first four. Since 2011, when they expanded to the field of 68 and they introduced the first four, there have only been one, one team, one HBCU from the MEAC or the SWAC that was able to win a game in the NCAA tournament that was not in the first four. And that's Norfolk State, the 15th seed. They knocked off the number two seed that year. Big deal. They've had seven, excuse me, HBCU, SWAC, MEAC, they've had seven victories. Only one of those seven have come in a non-first four-round game. Only one. Now you look at how many games they were able to win that was in the round of first four. You're looking at 2013, 2015, 2021 when we're talking about the MEAC. 2016, 2021, 2022 when we're talking about the SWAC. Those are moments that, oh, well, my team has more NCAA tournament victories than yours. You're not going to be like, well, that was in the first four. It doesn't matter. Yes, we're talking about births and appearances and things of that nature. But at the same time, you're tricking yourself if you're talking about bragging rights and you think they're not going to include victories. And where do most HBCU victories in the NCAA tournament come from? The first four. That's the history. That's the past. That's the reflection. And that's the reason why, though I might have my opinions on it, the round of first four is very beneficial to HBCUs. And I'm talking about wins and losses. My guy Isaac comes on the show and he tells me about how the monetary value of playing in the first four, and especially if you win that game, is significantly higher. It's something I didn't even know and I didn't even think about when talking about the tournament. So Isaac Shade of Locked On College Basketball will be joining the show as we continue with Locked On HBCU. Before we get into that, today's episode is brought to you by FanDuel. FanDuel Sportsbook is the official sports book of the Locked On Podcast Network. And it's been the legal tampering. Legal tampering started yesterday, right, in the NFL talking about free agency. So we kind of have an idea of where these players are going to go. Of course, this is not official. Of course, this can change. But we have a general idea of exactly where these players are going to go. Go put your money down on FanDuel before it becomes official, before the odds shift. And this is only for free agency, you know, but go do that before the odds shift, guys. 
Then you also have Texas Southern in the NCAA tournament in the first four. That game will be tonight. So you might want to rush and put your money down on that. It's really easy. It's really, really easy. And if you don't win your first bet, that's okay. There's no problem with that because on FanDuel, there's no such thing as an L. They're going to have your first bet no sweat because if you lose that first one, they're going to give you $1,000 back to bet with just free of charge just because they're good people like that. So go to FanDuel.com slash locked on and take advantage of every single offer. And as we continue rolling on today's episode of Locked on HBCU, I appreciate you for making us your first listen of the day. Every day for your second listen, check out Locked on College Basketball. But rather than endorse and build them up, I'm going to give the best endorsement I can and share with you the interview that I had with Isaac Shade of Locked on College Basketball, where he talks about the first four in the selection process of the NCAA tournament. All right, Isaac. So for those who don't know or maybe aren't completely aware, how are seedings for the NCAA tournament selected? This is a great question, Darian. So we talk about this thing called the S-curve. So basically, for those who don't know, there are 32 conferences across NCAA Division I with 363 total teams. Yeah, it's, it's a behemoth. There's a lot. And what they do is each team that wins their conference tournament, we call them an AQ, an automatic qualifier. So they take those 32 teams, they're automatically in, And then the selection committee takes the best next 36 teams that are at larges outside of that. So they just look at who are the best next 36 teams that didn't automatically get in. What their goal is, is to seed them one through 68 all the way down. And so then we look at this S curve. It's kind of like if you play, do you play fantasy football at all? So, you know, when you do the draft and it's like you have the snake draft where it's like if you have pick one and then you got pick 20 or whatever and then pick 20. And so it's that same kind of thing where they try to do it like seeds teams one through four are going to be the one seeds teams five through eight are going to go back the other way as the two seeds. And what they do is they go all the way down that until they get to team 68, which this year is fairly Dickinson. And so what they're doing, the teams that are going to go to the play-in games in Dayton are the four lowest at-large teams in terms of ranking and the four lowest automatic qualifying teams or AQs in terms of ranking. Okay, see, that's good. That was a question I was going to ask. How do they select those four? Now, I'll ask you because on the segment right before, I'm talking about how the first four is good for HBCU history and things of that nature. But I have my own opinions on accepting the 68. (laughs) What are your opinions when it comes on accepting the field of 68 as opposed to 64? That's it's been 12 years, but I'm still not quite used to it. Yeah, it's here's what I think it is. It is an opportunity for the bigger conferences to get more middling teams in because it's not, you're not going to get four more one bid league teams. So we're not going to get another SWAC team or another MEAC team. We're going to get another team from the big 10. That's not that great. Another team from the sec. That's not that great. And so it's those commissioners who frankly have more power in these power dynamics that are wanting to get their teams. And so that's where it comes from. I love the beauty of a 64 team bracket. Uh, but this is where we're at. It's better than having double this, I guess. But ultimately, um, it is a thing. Now, there are some potential wins in having 68 for these lower conferences, and we can certainly talk about that as well. Yeah, I think the 
first thing you get a victory. A lot of times it's hard to win as a 16 seed. So you're getting 16 versus 16. It's a more even matchup. It's essentially like a four to five, in my opinion. That's kind of how I look at it when trying to get the upside. That's absolutely correct, Darian. And so, like, for example, this year, the lowest four at-large teams are teams 43 through 46 on this S-curve that we're talking about. So that's Mississippi State, Pittsburgh, Arizona State, and Nevada, who a lot of people didn't think would get in, but they got in instead of, say, Rutgers, who a lot of people thought would get in. The lowest four AQs, 65 through 68, are Texas A&M Corpus Christi, Texas Southern, Shouts, and uh, Southeast Missouri State and Fairleigh Dickinson. And so those are the lowest four teams. So they're going to be the four playing in Dayton Tuesday night and Wednesday night. Now, there are two sides to this conversation. As I said, there's some good to it. Let me start with what I think is the bad of sending the, the automatic qualifiers to Dayton. For my money's worth, if you are the, the team that wins your conference tournament, that is something you should get to celebrate, and I think you should be automatically put into the main field. I, I, I love that opportunity to say, yes, we were one of those 64 teams that made it into the main field, and it's these, like, instead, let's have the eight teams that go to the play-in games all be at-large teams from the bigger conferences because they had their opportunities to make it into this bracket, and they did not win those games. So let's send them to Dayton. And by the way, with all due respect to the lower conference teams, those are the teams that are going to draw more eyeballs to the play-in games anyway, right? Because they've got oftentimes bigger fan bases. So let's send them there. So that's my push on why not to do that. But here's the thing, and you already said it, why coaches would push back on, I actually like being in these play-in games. It's two reasons. One that you already said. This is an opportunity for us to get an NCAA tournament win because, yes, winning a game in these play-in games, you can count that on your resume. You can hang it as a banner in your gym and say, we won an NCAA tournament game in 2023 or whenever it was. But here's the second thing, and this one might even be a little more important because the bottom line, Darian, is always what? Money. So here's the thing. <laughs> Anytime you play an NCAA tournament game, it's not about a win. It's about playing in the game you get what is called a unit. And so that is a certain amount of money paid, not just to the school, but to the conference of that participating school for participating in an NCAA tournament game. And so every team, all 68 that make it in, will get one of those units just for making it into the field. However, okay. each time you play another game, that means you get another unit. So with that in mind, if you're a 16 seed, who would you rather be playing for a shot at getting a second game? A one seed where 16 seeds are one in 147 all time, or would you rather be playing another 16 seed with a shot at getting a second game, even if it is against a one seed? I mean, it's if we're no talking brainer. about money. Right, we're talking right, about, we're money. Talking about money. money. So here you go. In 2022, each one of these units was worth $338,000, $338,887. $338,000, basically. That amount is paid to the conference each year for six years. So it's not just $338,000. Last year's units over the course of six years are worth $2,033,322 to the conference. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's stop right there. <laughs> Let's stop right there. Hold on. So you're telling me, okay, so last year, I believe TSU was in that's the right. First four as well. Texas, okay. So the teams so, that won the teams that won last year were Texas Southern and Wright State. Okay. So 
in 2023, they uh -huh. received two units. Correct? That's correct. So that's correct. So that's from, the from that performance. It's doubled. It's doubled. Because not so only then, do you win that play-in game, but you're participating in the next round as well. So now they're about to get another unit. So in next year, are they going to have three units, essentially? They're going to have the 2022 units and then also the 2023 that's right. unit? That's right. It banks. So because Texas Southern is in again this year, they have last year's two units being paid out $338,000 each. Plus we, and we don't, we won't know the numbers till later, but whatever this, this year's units are worth, it'll probably be still somewhere between that and 350,000. It doesn't jump too much each year, but it should go up. So Texas Southern will have earned another unit that will be paid out to the SWAC conference over the course of the next six years. And so because they got that double last year, it wasn't worth $2,033,000. It was worth $4,066,000. That's big time. So last year, the SWAC got those two units and the Horizon got those two units because Wright State won. Or back in 2021, it was Norfolk State and Texas Southern that won those play-in games. So the MEAC and the SWAC each got two units. So that means Texas Southern is doing work for the SWAC because they got two units in 2021 two units last year and the possibility of getting to whoever wins in these bottom four will get a second unit again this year. And so big, like big, important stuff for a conference. I will say on behalf of all of my Texas Southern Tigers to everybody else in the SWAC, <laughs> you're welcome. Um, I, I didn't know this, but you are welcome. You might not have known either. And if you did know, it doesn't change the fact that you're welcome. I'll ask you one last question, Isaac, before we get out of here. Sure. What are these, these, I guess I think I've heard RPI and net rankings, things uh -huh. that lead to being a lower seed, right? Because you win the conference. Why are you a 15 instead of a 16? I don't know what's happening with my camera. We'll be, oh, we're back. <laughs> Hold on. This it's a great is... question. I'll start answering while, while you're Go working ahead. on your camera there. Um, Thank it's you. All, so there, there are multiple of these metrics that the NCAA selection committee looks at. So there's a committee that meets throughout the course of the year. It's made up of ADs from different universities around the country that come together. They're watching all these games. Um, th so the net, for example, that you referenced is specifically this algorithm that was designed by the NCAA to help not necessarily with seeding, but with um, dividing up uh, like kind of an order of things. And so they don't use it as a, as a um, thing of like, oh, because the net tells us that this team's number one and this team's number 20, that's how we're going to rank them. But basically, it's, it's just to help with um, so, some ranking things along the way. But there's all these different things. Like you mentioned the, B, the RPI. That was what the NCAA used before the net. So the net was developed to replace the RPI basically and is where we're at today. But there's all these differences. Some of them are based on predictive metrics. So based on who a team has played, based on how they've performed, here's what the predictive metrics suggest they will do uh, going forward. So that would be like Ken Palm. If you ever hear people talk about Ken Palm, that is those metrics. Some of them are based more on actual results that happen, not the predictive metrics. And so they have the ability to look at all these different things. Now, within the net, you probably hear people talk about these quads. Four quads that uh, that 
every game you play is put into one of those four quads. And it's based on where your opponent is ranked in the net and what whether it's a home game, away game, or a neutral game. And so um, anytime you play a home game against a team ranked 1 through 30 in the net, that is considered quad 1. Um, anytime uh, you play a game against a team at home ranked 161st through 363rd, that's a quad 4 game. So all of these are placed into one of those four quads, and that's what we're talking about with that. Isaac, I appreciate you. Listen, <clears throat> ladies and gentlemen, what you just saw was a crazy technical error. Um, I, I do ask for your forgiveness. I thank you for still watching. You still got some great information. And look at the curls. Look at the curls of my guy, Isaac. So you got to see him on the big screen. <laughs> but I just want you to know, this is really a sign of what today has been trying to record this interview. <laughs> this was countless technical difficulties after countless technical difficulties in his response to continue talking despite everything going on is exactly what we had to do to get to this interview. Right. If you knew what it took to get this done, you would know why he did not say, I'll wait. There's no more waiting. <laughs> We've been doing this forever, okay? That's right. For a 13-minute interview, it's taken 50 minutes. <laughs> that is not an exaggeration, no. but I greatly appreciate it, Isaac. Guys, I tell you every single day to go check out Locked On College Basketball. But so, so now that you now know my words are empty, you've heard the expertise, you've heard the man, you've heard the insight, and this is the exact reason. There's no better endorsement of Locked On College Basketball than what he was able to do today, and I appreciate you coming on. Darren, it's my pleasure. I'm so thankful for what you do on Locked On HBCU. It's great stuff. Love checking it out, folks. You are with the right dude. Keep tuning in five days Thank a week, you. Locked On HBCU. I appreciate it. Take care. You too, brother. Thank you. Thank you. Much appreciation for Isaac coming on. Like I told you, that's a great example of why you need to check out the show with him and Andy. I didn't know that monetary aspect, but we've broken down how they're selected. We've broken down why I think it's a good thing for HBCUs. But let's break down the game itself. Let's break down Texas Southern versus Fairleigh Dickinson because I have attributes that intrigue me, attributes that concern me, and also something not related to this game directly but it actually makes me a little bit optimistic we'll break down all of those categories as we continue with locked on hbcu And that's wrapping up Locked on HBCU. I appreciate you for making us your first listen of the day, every day, and making it all the way to segment three, Tribe. I appreciate that, for real. Now, this game is intriguing, concerning, and I'm also a little bit optimistic about it. I'm going to break it down in, those, in that order. But what intrigues me is the style of play. See, Fairleigh Dickinson, who Texas Southern will be facing at 530 Central. Let's just break it down with all area code, or not area code, time zones. 630 Central. No, 630 Eastern. 5.30 Central, 4.30 Mountain Time, and then 3.30 Pacific, right? You don't know how many times that I have struggled or missed part of a MEAC game because I thought the times were in Central. It was on me. They're all on Eastern Time, so I should have just been able to do the math myself. But I don't want you to be in that situation. So whatever time zone that you live in, I got you. Trust that. But the thing about Fairleigh Dickinson that really intrigues me in this matchup versus TSU is the fact that they both have really good guards. See, Dimitri Roberts, Grant Singleton, 
Robert scores over 16 points a game. Singleton scores over 14 points a game. So they have guards that know how to get buckets. But one of my favorite Twitter clips ever is I packed that thing too. And that's exactly what TSU could say. You know, that's exactly what TSU could say. Yeah, they got Roberts, they got Singleton, but we got Henry and we got Barnes. We have P.J. Henry who just won SWAC player, of the, or excuse me, SWAC MVP in the first tournament goes. We have P.J. Henry who just scored 40 points on Alcorn towards the end of the regular season. We know he can drop buckets. We have David Barnes, who is the leading scorer of the team, both of which play guard. Now, what will interest me is if maybe Jordan Carl Nicholas, who is trying to make sure that this is not his last collegiate game, maybe they focus a little bit more on the inside. Maybe they don't get into the war of guards. Or maybe they say, I packed that thing too. And I got Henry, I got Barnes, and it's just going to come down to whose guards are better because both of these teams know how to score the basketball and both of these teams have guards who know how to score the basketball. But I'm not done. We're not just talking about intrigue. We're talking about concern. And what concerns me is the style of play that defense, or excuse me, the style of defense that Fairleigh Dickinson has. They press more than any team in the NCAA. This is not an estimate. No, they have the highest press rate in the NCAA that goes for all conferences. The reason this is concerning is because TSU didn't really execute against the press greatly, in my opinion. Alcorn, they did it with a lot of consistency. So once they started pressing, they really pressed. Grambling, they didn't do it with any sort of consistency. They pressed for a couple of possessions. I thought it was effective, and then they just went away from it. I thought that was a mistake for Grambling. But overall, the press was effective against TSU, whether it was Alcorn, whether it was Grambling. I just think somebody needs to exploit it a little more. Now, I'm hoping they don't, but 51% press rate, we know they're going to. Like, the over-under four and a half minutes, this is not on FanDuel, but just look at it, four and a half minutes. Over-under, how long does it take before TSU is faced with a full-court press? We'll see. I'm taking the under. I think it'll be less than four and a half minutes before they finally see it. Might be like two, honestly. It might be the first dead ball or it might be the first uh, made bucket, right? As long as you're not talking about in transition, you're going to see a full court press very quickly by Fairleigh Dickinson. The reason TSU was able to get by it wasn't because I thought it was overly executed well or their plan was executed well, but because they had cushion. So they weren't horrendous, but they weren't great. And against a team that's going to press you as much as Fairleigh Dickinson is going to press you, you're probably going to need to be great. Otherwise, you're going to allow that defense to turn into offense for your. They had cushion against Alcorn and Grambling. They had the ability to make mistakes and still retain their lead. I don't expect FDU to wait until nine minutes left in the game when TSU has a 13-point lead to start pressing you. I just don't expect that to be the case. And lastly, what makes me optimistic is the fact that, and it's not directly connected to this game, but it's the fact that TSU has already knocked off an Arizona State. It's the fact that they've already knocked off a Pac-12 team. Now, I understand the cliche is that a strong out-of-conference makes you ready for these type of games. Maybe, maybe. That's what they say. But what I firmly believe is that winning an out-of-conference has you ready for these games.
And he was talking about how the confidence of having Drew Brees led to them just playing him. Now, there is no Drew Brees in football. I'm not trying to relate it to the Saints, but I'm just saying when you have the confidence, your performance is different. You know that you can knock off a Pac-12 team, so I'm pretty sure you're confident you can knock off an NEC team. It's just that simple. And that confidence will radiate. The confidence will play or will show itself through your play. And those are the things that intrigue me, concern me, and then also have me a bit optimistic. On tomorrow's episode, we'll be breaking down why the SWAC and the MEAC are not two big conferences in Grambling. You're not in the NIT for this specific reason. But you got to wait till tomorrow to find that out. For your second listen, go check out Locked On College Basketball. If you enjoyed the second segment, you know exactly what you're going to get. In the meantime, in between time, if you're looking for me, you can find me on Twitter at South Exclusives right there, right there, right there, right there, right there. Y'all see it at South Exclusives. Until the next time that we hear each other, family, take care. Stay blessed. Peace.